We are in uh, Malachi chapter 1, as I said, and what we are going to discover today in broad terms is the problem of improper worship. What are some of the overarching details about Malachi that we need to know before we begin this four-sermon series going through the whole book? What do we need to know in advance? Well, first of all, the author is Malachi. That one's kind of obvious. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, a pronouncement, the word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. Now, unfortunately, we don't know a lot about this man uh, beyond his name. Some authors of Scripture, we know a lot of biographical detail about, men like Moses and Paul. But Malachi, God in his wisdom did not see fit to preserve a lot of information for us. And we have to be, learn to be content with that. Fortunately, there are details about this book that we can say a lot more about. As an example, the recipients. Who is Malachi writing to? Simply put, he is writing to the Israelites generally and to the priests more specifically. Malachi, again, chapter 1, verse 1, a pronouncement, the word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. Not only does God speak to all of Israel, uh, but there are also going to be moments when he narrows the focus down to the priests serving in the temple in Jerusalem specifically. We have examples like chapter 1, verse 6, the Lord of armies says to you priests who despise my name. Or in chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, therefore this decree is for you priests. Already, just in these first couple of verses that we've been reading, we're beginning to get the sense that something serious is going on. Whatever Yahweh has to talk about, Israel has done something wrong, and God is speaking a corrective measure against it. What exactly is it then that he wants to talk about? The major themes in the book of Malachi, as we will find out, are sincere faith and insincere worship. The importance of sincere faith and the problem of insincere worship. What we're going to discover over the next four sermons, split between myself and Brother Jacob, is that Yahweh, excuse me, Yahweh cares about the heart condition of his people. The Israelites claim that they are loyal to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers, and that their relationship with him is in good standing, yet God is going to quarrel with them. He's going to say something to the contrary and prove them wrong by their actions. They are saying one thing, they are doing another. In particular, he's going to emphasize that the priests are not fulfilling their religious duties as they ought to. In other words, they are talking the talk, not walking the walk. And this theme of insincere worship in the temple is actually one of the two main reasons why we know when Malachi is writing as well. And loosely, we can say that Malachi, he's writing toward the end of the Old Testament period, around about 5 to 400 B.C. 
We might be tempted to be frustrated by such a broad range of dates, but unfortunately, Malachi didn't leave us a little note saying, I wrote this on April 17th of 450 BC at 1.30 in the afternoon. There are times when we wish that the authors of Scripture would be that specific, but it hasn't happened. So we have to be content to make some rough guesses. The first major clue about dating the book can be found in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, where God talks about his destruction of the nation of Edom. You have, for example, verse 4, though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. This, this very destruction of Edom, excuse me, is the main theme of the book of Obadiah, another biblical book that we examined just a few months ago. You may recall from that previous sermon series that Edom is just to the southwest, or excuse me, southeast of biblical Israel, and that the two nations are actually distantly related, with Israel ultimately being the descendants of Abraham's grandson Jacob, and the Edomites being the descendants of his grandson Esau. When the Babylonians sacked Israel in 586 BC, one of the most important, most devastating events in all of ancient Israelite history, when this happened, Edom cheered. They rejoiced that their enemy had been destroyed. Yahweh promised through the prophet Obadiah that Edom would likewise be destroyed for their cruelty. And sure enough, this came to pass about 30 years later. The Babylonians came back and destroyed Edom in 553 BC. We can thus say with confidence that Malachi is writing sometime after 553 BC because he's assuming that the destruction of Edom has already happened. We can push the date further forward, though, because, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, one of Malachi's main themes concerns the priests and their duties in the temple. And this theme assumes that the Jerusalem temple is standing. If God is going to critique the priests, they have to have a temple that they can be serving in or failing to serve in. The Israelites were allowed to return back to their land in 538 BC, but they didn't finish building a second temple until 515. If God is critiquing the priests for slacking on the job, that implies that the temple has already been rebuilt and that they've had enough time to build a track record of shirking their responsibilities. Thus, we can say that Malachi probably received his prophetic message from God sometime in the 400s BC, but we can't get much more specific than that. And the final overarching consideration that we want to keep in mind before we begin to walk through the text line by line is the literary device, the, the medium, the, the method that God uses to communicate what his problem is. God is going to speak using a specific kind of literary genre called the covenant lawsuit. In simplest terms, a covenant is a documented relationship. A covenant is a documented relationship. Probably the most familiar kind of covenant to us is marriage. A man and a woman 
pledge to spend their lives together. And one of the rituals that they go through as part of the marriage process is to sign legal documentation promising that they will hold themselves true to the terms of the covenant. Covenants can take several other forms, though. The European Union is a modern example of a very different kind of covenant. Twenty-seven countries on the European continent are members of an international organization that grants certain privileges to the citizens living in those countries, but also comes with certain obligations and expectations of its member countries. Covenants in the ancient Near Eastern world of biblical Israel could likewise take on numerous forms, including marriages between a man and a woman, political alliances between nations, or religious devotion of a nation to a god. That is what the Old Testament law, the Torah, is. It is the documentation, the ratification of God's relationship with Old Testament Israel. It is the written record upon which Israel can claim that they belong to Yahweh and that Yahweh is going to be their God. The only problem with all of this is that if one covenant partner breaks the terms of the covenant, the other partner then has the legal right to terminate the relationship. If you're married, one of the most basic requirements is that you not commit adultery. If you do, your spouse has every legal and moral right to end the marriage. Now, bringing this to the Sinai Covenant, if you know your Old Testament history at all, you know that it's basically one extremely long story of Israel's continual covenant disobedience, covenant breaking against the God that they claim to love and worship. And there are very few bright spots along the way. Thus, here in the book of Malachi, right at the end of Old Testament history, we find God taking his covenant people to court. Yahweh is the plaintiff. Israel is the defendant. And Yahweh is arguing that his covenant partner, his spouse, if you will, has been unfaithful to him. They have broken covenant. At the same time, Yahweh is also the judge because he cannot appeal to an authority higher and more objective than himself. But because God is also perfectly just, he cannot be accused of favoritism or conflict of interest. This context of a courtroom scene is the reason why the text of Malachi is arranged in a peculiar question and answer format. Yahweh makes accusations against Israel, they attempt to defend themselves, and then Yahweh justifies his claim that Israel has been unfaithful to him. Just a couple of examples to illustrate the point. Chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says Yahweh, yet you ask, how have you loved us? Another example, same chapter, verse 6, you priests who despise my name, yet you ask, how have we despised your name? And in chapter 2, verse 14, the, the priests ask, 
Um, why does the Lord no longer respect our offerings? There are going to be several more questions that they are going to ask in Malachi, and Yahweh is going to answer each of them in turn, as we will see. For right now, though, and with all of that bird's-eye view information in mind, we may now walk through the text of chapter 1, and in it, we will discover that God is making two primary accusations against Israel, and that we should thus heed two primary warnings. Number one, in verses 1 through 5, beware religious grandfathering, and I'll explain what I mean by that term in a minute. And number two, verses 6 through 14, beware religious routine. So number one, beware religious grandfathering. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. A pronouncement, the word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says Yahweh, yet you ask, how have you loved us? This, here we have God's first courtroom accusation. Israel, I have loved you for many centuries as my special covenant people. And the defendant has the audacity to question God's love. How have you loved us? In their minds, their question is justified based on their historical circumstances. Although God has brought them back from the Babylonian exile and allowed them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, daily life is still very hard for Israel at this point in time. Most of their country still lies in ruins. They have very little money, very little protection, and very little opportunity to provide for themselves. They're looking at the circumstances around them, and they're crying out, how could God treat us this way? They forget the fact that the Babylonian exile was God's discipline upon them for many centuries of disobedience. They are falsely assuming that if God loves them, he owes them a good life, free of burden and free of consequences. Any of us in the room who have ever been parents recognize the faulty logic at work there. Starting in the second half of verse 2, Yahweh offers his first piece of evidence to support his lawsuit. Beginning in the second half of verse 2, God says, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is Yahweh's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins, Yahweh of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country, and the people whom Yahweh has cursed forever. To understand the logic behind Yahweh's answer, his counter-argument here, I need to explain that term that I used a moment ago, religious grandfathering. You might have heard the expression, to be grandfathered in, before. And in most of the contexts where you would use that sort of slang expression, it means something like someone receiving an exemption or special treatment based on previous circumstances. So as an example, in 1984, 
the state of Mississippi officially changed its method of capital punishment from gas chambers to lethal injection. But anyone who had already been put on death row before that law went into effect was still sent to the gas chamber. So even though lethal injection began in 1984, the last death or the last execution by gas chamber took place five years later in 1989. The, the death row inmates who were already slotted for execution were grandfathered into the previous arrangement. Now that's not exactly what's going on here in Malachi. I had to massage the definition a little bit, but it, it begins to give us a picture of what's happening. Essentially, the Israelites, in addition to assuming that God owes them a good life, they are also assuming that God is pleased with them. He's happy with them simply because of Father Abraham. Remember way back in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 when God promised our forefather Abraham that we were going to be his special people and that he was going to bless the whole world through us? I guess that makes us pretty darn special, doesn't it? And God is a God of truth. God cannot lie. He cannot go back on his promises. So I guess that means he needs us and he can't do anything to harm us. Yahweh's response to this arrogance is to remind them of the nation of Edom. Edom could have used all the same excuses that Israel is using right now. We're descended from Abraham too, so we have just as much of a claim to the Abrahamic promise as you Israelites do. Not only that, we still worship Yahweh even after all these centuries. Sure, we worship a few other gods on the side besides that fact, but we pray to him, we sing praises to him, we make sacrifices to him. Surely, we've got him cornered. And no matter how much we disobey him, he can never allow us to be conquered. That's probably what the Edomites were saying to themselves, and yet that is exactly what happened. God allowed them to be conquered because of their disobedience. And if they should ever dare try to rebuild their former glory and high-handed sin, God will be right there to knock them back down again. And now God is turning to Israel and he's saying, you think I'm not prepared to do exactly the same thing to you? Verse 5. Your own eyes, you, Israel, you will see this, and you yourselves will say, Yahweh is great, even beyond the boundaries, the borders of Israel. We'll look at the significance of this verse in a few moments when we reach verses 11 and 14, but I will simply say for now that this is a bright glimmer of hope among what is otherwise a very bleak book. It's a reminder to us of the Abrahamic promise to bless all the nations of the earth through the Messiah. But for right now, let's move on to our second major warning from God. First, he told us to beware religious grandfathering, and now in verses 6 through 14, he is going to tell us to beware religious routine. Verses 6 through 9. 
A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, then where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says Yahweh of armies to you priests who despise my name. Yet you defend yourself. How have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is that not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is that not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Asks Yahweh of armies. And now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? Asks Yahweh of armies. And then skipping forward just a little bit to verses 12 through 14a. God continues, But you priests are profaning my name when you say, Yahweh's table is defiled, and its product, its food, is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance this is, and you scorn it, says Yahweh of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept it from your hands, asks Yahweh. The deceiver is cursed, who has an acceptable male in his flock, and yet makes a vow, but sacrifices a defective animal to Yahweh. God is now narrowing the focus of his courtroom accusations. Before, he accused all of Israel of unfaithfulness, but now he's focusing the interrogation lamp in on the priests themselves, because surely if there's anyone left in all of the nation who is still loyal to God, surely it should be the priests shouldn't it? But as it tragically turns out, no. To summarize everything that Yahweh has just said in that last series of verses that we just read, the priests are phoning it in at their job. They aren't maintaining sacred space because, well, that's just too much work. They attempt to deny God's accusation several times. They ask questions like, how have we despised you? How have we defiled you? We're offering sacrifices just like you told us in the book of Moses. Isn't that good enough? As it turns out, they either aren't reading their scriptures enough or they don't care enough. Because God said specifically multiple times in the Torah that sacrificial animals needed to be free of obvious physical blemishes. Just as one example, Leviticus chapter 1 verse 3. If a man offers a burnt offering from the herd, he is to bring an unblemished male. There we go. Now this was a very important standard to maintain. Because the entire temple system was one massive object lesson for the Israelites about sacred space and the presence of God. Everything about the sensory experience of being in the temple was designed to draw the Israelite mind to the Garden of Eden. 
you have garden imagery carved into the very walls of the temple. Everything is overlaid with gold because the ancients associated shiny stuff with the supernatural realm. To to see a room covered in gold to them did not communicate wealth, it communicated divine presence. Likewise, incense was always burning because that was considered the scent of heaven. If you've ever smelled incense and how wonderful it is, think about smelling that in the context of a world where there is no toothpaste or deodorant. You would consider it the scent of heaven too. Likewise, the animals and the priests, the sacrifices and the sacrificers were meant to be free of obvious physical defects so as to not be a reminder of our imperfect fallen condition, to not break the object lesson that this is a small temporary Garden of Eden where God will dwell with his people. For example, a man who had lost his eye in combat could not serve in the temple, not because he was somehow less human or less worthy to serve as a priest, but because his battle scar would have been a visible reminder that we live in a fallen, imperfect world where war is sometimes a necessary evil. So too the animals brought for sacrifice just like the priests, the animals were supposed to be unblemished as well, so as to maintain that object lesson of holiness, sacred space, life, and the presence of God. According to Malachi, though, neither the priests nor the people care anything about any of this. To be clear, the issue at hand is not monetary value. Yahweh is not upset at the Israelites because their sacrifices didn't cost enough. He owns the sheep on, or excuse me, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God does not need anything from the Israelites, and he is not snobbishly saying, you didn't spend enough money on me. That's not what it's about. He's upset at them because of the heart condition that's taking place in their giving, regardless of how much the animals are worth. The Israelites are thinking to themselves, why go through all the trouble of finding spotless animals, which are fewer in number, so they're harder to find and they're probably worth more money? Why would I go through all that trouble? Surely any old goat will do, won't it? I'll just bring that old blind one instead. I don't have any use for it, so I'll just send that up to the temple. What the priests should be doing in response to that is admonishing the people, admonishing them for their carelessness. But the priests themselves are so careless about God's holiness that they just go right along with it. They don't care. All right, you got an old blind lame goat here. All right, let's go. Let's get this taken care of. Get it over with. I got to get to lunch. They are complicit in the crimes of the people. In verse 12, the priests say, the Lord's table is defiled, and its product, its food, is contemptible. Going back to the Edomites and their father Esau, that is the exact same word that's used to describe Esau's attitude 
toward his status as Isaac's oldest son. Genesis chapter 25, verse 34. This is when Esau comes home from hunting, famished, and Jacob won't let him eat until he promises to transfer his birthright. You get to the end of the story, verse 34. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. Now, underneath the translation, those two underlined words have the same root. Esau and the priests are the same. In that, they possess a great honor that they should hold in highest esteem, but instead they throw it away because they have misplaced priorities. God's response to this generation of priests with calloused, stony hearts is frightening. Malachi 1 verse 10, I wish that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer use or no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you says Yahweh of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hand. Ouch. Yahweh would sooner that the doors of the temple were shut, that worship ceased, and that Israel's connection, their, their means of communication and communion with God were cut off, rather than that they continue in their half-hearted devotion. I am not pleased with you, and I will not accept your offerings. Seems like all hope is gone for Israel at this point, doesn't it? Seems like a dark conclusion to the entire dark story of the Old Testament. Across the centuries, Israel has deliberately broken covenant with God again and again and again, generation after generation, century after century. And it seems like God has had just about enough of them. <clears throat> I don't think any of us would have blamed God if it had been the case that he would have just done away with them entirely at this point. But thankfully, the story is not yet over. Verse 11, God begins to change his tone. He says, My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of armies. And then skipping down to the second half of verse 14, I am a great king, says Yahweh of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. And while we're at it, let's bring back verse 5 from the previous section. Your own eyes, Israel, will see this, God's continued righteous justice upon Edom. And you yourselves will say, Yahweh is great even beyond the borders of Israel. These verses offer us a glimmer of hope that the story is not yet done. Even just in chapter 1, and we've got three more to go, Yahweh has already sufficiently proven his case of Israel's covenant faithlessness. And he would be well within his rights to divorce them. But in his amazing patience and kindness, he's not going to, at least not yet. 
Malachi is going to give us more detail, especially in chapters 3 and 4, about what God has in mind for the future. What with all the talk about the Elijah figure and the day of Yahweh's judgment. But we will address that when we get to it. For now, it will suffice to say that some 1,300 years before, God had made a promise to Abraham that through his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The Tower of Babel incident was going to be undone, and all the nations of the earth were going to be gathered back together to worship the one true God. And Yahweh hints to us here, even in these verses, that he intends to see that plan through to the end. There is no plan B. Even though it's been 13 long centuries since God made that promise to Abraham, and even though the nation of Israel has been nothing but continually disobedient in all of that time, still, God's goodness is greater than their wickedness. His faithfulness is greater than their faithlessness. And despite all appearances to the contrary, the Messiah will indeed come to make all things right. What should we learn from this? As Christians living some 24 or 2,500 years after Malachi, Let me conclude with two thoughts for you to chew on in the coming week. Number one, examine the source of your salvation. Regarding the point that I made about religious grandfathering, there are many people in Western society today who would call themselves Christians in a loose sense of that term. If you were to press them on that and ask that, why is that the case? Why are you a Christian? They will often give you a sort of religious resume. My grandfather was a preacher man. My parents baptized me when I was a baby. I was at the church every time the door was open when I was a kid. People cite these things as though they've done God some kind of favor, and now he owes them for that. The Israelites and the Edomites have taught us something this morning about precisely that line of thinking. Assuming God's good favor upon any other basis than the blood of Jesus Christ is a dangerous thing. Romans 5.1 tells us that Christians do indeed have peace with God, but it's not based upon anything that we do. God doesn't care what your religious resume looks like. It is instead based upon what Jesus has already done at Calvary. If today were your last day, would you be able to walk into eternity with confidence, knowing that you've placed your trust and loyalty in Jesus of Nazareth as God, as Savior, and as King? Number two, examine the sincerity of your devotion. Presumably, today is not the last day for most of us. Chances are, Lord willing, 
Most of us probably have years or even decades of life left ahead of us. Knowing that to be the case and presuming that people in this room do indeed claim believing loyalty in Jesus, does your outer and inner life reflect that? Do you walk the walk as well as talk the talk? And what is your state of mind as you walk the walk? Are you phoning it in like Esau and the priests? Or do you do what you do out of sincere gratitude to the one who made you, sustains you, redeemed you, and commissioned you in the building of the kingdom? Let's pray. Gracious Redeemer, thank you for the gift of your word for all 66 books, including the little book of Malachi. While it has a few bright spots in it, Malachi is overall a fairly bleak book. It's not something that most of us would um, want to read on a day when we need a little bit of cheering up. But everything that you say in your word, both the pleasant stuff and the not so pleasant stuff, is important. It's important for us to know. And through Malachi chapter one, you have taught us that you care not only about the actions of a person, but about the motivations behind those actions. Holy Spirit, I pray for all of the believers in this room that you would strengthen us. Daily life makes being a Christian hard. It's hard to be consistent in our faithfulness to you. And if we are being honest, we would probably confess that we're more like, we are like the Israelites more often than we would care to admit. But remind us of the gracious forgiveness that is to be found in the blood of Jesus. And remind us that the Holy Spirit empowers us, enables us to continue walking the walk, and to grow more like Christ, to live as you would have us live each and every day. Through the name of Jesus, our great King, our great High Priest, for whom we do all of this, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother Skrbina. Take your hymnal and turn to hymn number 297. And stand with me as we sing, Search me, O God, and know my heart today. In light of what we just heard, and God turning on the searchlight in our hearts, uh, if you are a believer and there are uh, areas that uh, uh, you're holding on to, uh, and you have decisions to make along those lines, or if you're not a believer and you realize that, as uh, Pastor Skurbina mentioned, uh, if you went from here today and this was your last day on earth, what would your future be? Uh, these and other uh, decisions to make, our, our deacons are down front. Uh, uh, if you have decisions to make, they'll meet with you and pray with you. Let's sing uh, Search Me, O God, hymn number 297.
back with us tonight as we worship and we gather around God's word with uh, Brother Jacob Claxton uh, taking on chapter two. Is that right, uh, Jacob? And then next week, uh, we'll uh, be handling Malachi uh, chapter three and chapter four in the uh, same manner with Pastor Skirbina and, and uh, Brother Claxton. So uh, be in prayer for these men, be in prayer for Pastor and Kathy as they're away. And uh, also, don't forget, uh, children, tonight at 5 o'clock for uh, rehearsal for our uh, children's choir. As we leave uh, this morning, yet not I, but Christ in me. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. Lift it up. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is only bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. God bless you as you go.